I would say it's not possible to not let it affect you personally. This is then also when we talk to donors and partners and transport these true emotions to explain what is happening on the ground requires a lot of empathy and also you have to be moved by the work you do. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode and an in-person live episode here in Schaffhausen from the same podcasting studio, another episode of our podcast Partners in Time. And today I'm extremely pleased to have two ladies with me from the children's charity Save the Children. That is Lea Bachmann and Nina Bissig. Welcome. Thank you for coming and thank you for being with us here in the podcast container in Schaffhausen. Nice to have you. Hi, Chris. Very nice to meet you. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, of course, anytime. So tell us a little bit about it. We've had a partnership for quite some time now, I think, ever going through the COVID-19 pandemic and then right into the Ukraine conflict. So also from your end, you must have been extremely busy over the last two, three years and probably even before that. Why don't you give our listeners a bit of a flavor, a bit of an idea what Save the Children is all about, what your work entails, what you focus on? Absolutely, with pleasure. Well, who is Save the Children? How many minutes do I have for that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Save the Children um, is actually the leading child rights organization in the world. We cover emergency responses, development programs, but we also do a lot of advocacy so that children's voices are heard. We are currently active in around 120 countries and actually were founded already over 100 years ago in 1919. Wow, 1919. So a little bit like, you know, as I found out today, you know, after, oh, this is probably like a very UK specific, but, you know, the Lionesses won the you know European uh, football. And, and I thought, you know, this was a relatively new thing. This was also nearly 100 years ago. Women's football was a big sport. So save the children, 100 years ago already. That's amazing. And your, your own personal role within the organization? I'm the philanthropy director. Yeah. And I have been with the organization for eight and a half years now. Cool. What about you, Nina? I'm the head of corporate partnerships, mm. um, so responsible for all the for all the campaigns and partnerships we have with corporates, and been with Save the Children for six years now. Brilliant, and Save the Children specialises in specifically helping children that are most vulnerable to the effects of conflict and emergencies of all sorts. So, where's the focus point? So, generally speaking, um, Save the Children wants to help the most deprived children in the world, which means they are the most marginalized ones, the hardest to reach, um, which is often the case in conflicts and emergencies, um, very particularly also in forgotten crises, because wherever there is media attention, there is typically also quite a lot of uh, support around. But where the media doesn't focus on, um, the help is also reduced. And we uh, really want to make sure that these children are um, supported and get a chance for a better life. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, tell us a little bit, maybe a little bit of a flavor of COVID-19. You know, that was a particular crisis that was you know, obviously a pandemic. It was global. It wasn't, uh, it had a lot of media attention, obviously, but there's also great need to, to help children du during that situation. Tell us a little bit what, what, where the focus was for Save the Children. So COVID, yes, indeed, um, that was a difficult situation for us because what we realized was that mainly the external or public attention was a lot on the health aspects of the COVID pandemic. But what we realized, um, especially also in areas where we work with the most uh, hardest to reach 
children, actually the economic effect and the socioeconomic effect on children and their families was sometimes even harder than actually the medical effect. So one tragedy, I don't know how else to put it, is that so many children, millions of children worldwide dropped out of school due to COVID. And in our studies, we figured out that actually most of them will never return back to school because um, children and especially young girls, they got married away. So child marriage increased again heavily. But also um, child labor spiked again because families had to sort of take their children into labor as opposed to putting them into school. And um, to take this momentum away again and change the dynamic is actually something that, that is quite, quite a challenge and something that has occupied us for the past mm. two, three years now. Yeah, and and that's not country specific. That is, I mean, I mean, some elements are, but you know, it, children disappearing from education—that's almost a global problem. Huh? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because I, I I had no idea, and I, I read about this the other day as well. That basically there's x uh, hundred thousands of children have never reappeared at school after COVID. Have just literally dropped out of any type of formal education, and that's I mean, obviously a tragedy in itself. And how do you specifically help? children in that situation? How do you, you know, support families in bringing their children back to, to education and, and supporting them during a crisis like this? There are um, many different ways in, in how far we help and we actually always uh, seek to adapt our response really to the local circumstances and environment. Um, and I guess that's sort of one strength that Save the Children has is the fact that we are in 120 countries means that we are really locally anchored and our national colleagues, they know best what actually is the current situation and which help would have the, the biggest impact. And so we adapt all our responses really locally to, to the needs there. Generally speaking, when it comes to education, we want to make sure that children have access to basic education. So especially in COVID, we transferred from sort of the school-based learning into mobile or virtual learning, equipping, for instance, um, children or families with iPads or, or virtual devices that, mm. that could facilitate it. Um, and one particular story that uh, just uh, pops to mind was actually a camel library in which we took camels, their bags filled with books, and then they walked literally from village to village and sort of um, gave children a possibility to, to have access to books and learn, um, which is actually really a very nice um project we invented due to the circumstances and the necessity. And I've got to ask you there, because obviously the, the curriculum of each and every school and education system in the world is quite specific. And we all learned like during COVID, of course, there was remote learning. You could keep kids busy with sort of general learning software and stuff. But were you able to actually create something that kids could do at home that was specific to where they were in their schooling system? Or was it really sort of more general engagement to make sure they're kind of busy for the day? That really depended locally on, on sort of the, the circumstances and the environment. Mm. We do have some proven and standardized ways of numeric and, and literacy uh, education components that are sort of almost universal. But of course, depending on the exact context, you want to adapt that standard 
procedure standard component to sort of the local circumstances. But there are some aspects that we know and we have studies around that, that a particular teaching aspect or a component um, can almost universally be used. And, and that's how we sort of create our common approaches, which are sort of a well thought through concept mm. that have some standardized components in the package, which then can be adapted locally yeah. to the context. And of course, remote learning also depends on the availability of technology uh, and power and Wi-Fi and many other things. So uh, how, how can you support with that? I mean, as far as the distribution of uh, virtual learning is concerned, indeed, that again depends on many different variables. Um, in one country, for instance, we used radio stations um, and then we made sure that actually um, all the households were equipped with radios, which was the easiest way to, to uh, connect people. In other countries, it was rather the mobile phones, where mobile phones were already very um, well distributed. We could use that network. In Switzerland, for instance, in uh, asylum centers, we worked a lot with sort of online um, sort of toolkits yeah. uh, through access via computers that were available. So really, again, varies a lot. Yeah. And then, of course, coming out of COVID, you know, immediately afterwards, the heartbreak of seeing millions of people displaced by the conflict in Ukraine. Um, and of course, we also approached you at the time to say, how can we help? What can we do? And I understand you were on the ground really, really quickly, huh? because normally that's also always the drama that it takes <laughs> three months of, of hardship uh, before organizations really, really come in and, and build a proper support network. How's that been for you? And how did you deal with that sort of very urgent emergency that, that uh, emerged in Ukraine? Yeah, indeed. I mean, it was really sort of heartbreaking to experience that following COVID, there was suddenly the next really heavy emergency rising. We were indeed present very early on, actually already since 2014, we have been in the Ukraine uh, working. And the, the Donbass. Exactly. Right, okay. Working yeah. working there. And so we also with through a lot of partner organizations and our own offices. So our um, presence in the country was already quite widely uh, distributed. And that helped us immediately turning into a humanitarian response team. And then also in the neighboring countries, including also other European countries like Germany, in Switzerland, Italy, we, we ramped up our, our work and made sure we could support the Ukrainian refugees. And of course, also like in the country itself, I mean, this conflict is really marked by quite heavy artillery battles, a lot of shelling going on. So I can only assume that a lot of time for families is spent in air raid shelters, is spent in some type of bunker facility. How, how do you help children? I mean, this, this experience alone must be extremely traumatic to leave your home, to be literally ripped out of your bed, probably by your parents or caretaker, to be taken underground and then spend a lot of time in these conditions, probably very little lighting, very little in the sense of uh, entertainment, uh, medical support, uh, cooking facilities. Uh, how, how can you make a difference there? So indeed, um, whenever there is a emergency hitting a country or a region, then our local employees are affected as well. Mm. So um, that was yes. very much the case in, in the Ukraine and also in the neighboring countries. Personally, I was in Lithuania for a while and um, our colleagues in Lithuania, they were also really personally sort of concerned and, scared, and yeah. in, in, in yeah. a shock state. And so... Um, we 
do take our staff safeguarding very seriously. And we also want to make sure that our staff is secure so that they can then help and, and reach out to the most deprived children and their families. And typically in an emergency, this is um, in a first phase very much a case of analyzing the situation, understanding where are the biggest needs and, and how what, what is the situation. And particularly um, in the Ukraine in the first few weeks, literally the situation changed minute by minute or hour by hour. So an information we had or a condition that we sort of assessed and thought this is how we're going to re respond to it. An hour later was completely different because the village we wanted to work in or the um, building we wanted to choose was suddenly destroyed or inaccessible. So really one of the sort of most important factors in humanitarian responses is flexibility and agility and making sure we can really quickly adapt and make sure we can have the flexibility to mm. change and not follow a rigid procedure. That always helps. Yes. And... It struck me as well that despite all of the immediate emergency and the immediate horrors of war, life sort of goes on as well in the sense that, you know, people are still having babies, still heavily pregnant, they still need to look after newborns, there's still that joy of life happening in the middle of all of it. Kids still need to be kids and play and, and have an element of sort of fun and recovery and, and snapping out of this traumatic environment. And that's kind of this... This sort of very strange uh, thing that you must be dealing with on the ground, that on one hand you have all of the trauma, all of the mental health impacts, but on the other hand you're trying to create a bit of a sense of normality, which is so important for children, I can only assume. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, this is exactly one of the components we are working with, is providing a child-friendly space, which is a space and that can be a room of a house or also outdoors depending on the situation it's very um, adaptable but the core essence is that this is an area where children can be children again very often or in most cases this these, these uh, child-friendly spaces are very colorful there are a lot of toys and plays and Uh, children stuff around so that children can draw and read books or um, just sort of retreat in a little cushion area and 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 sleep and and recover a bit but they're also um, always supported with psychosocial support so we also always have a referral system in place that when we know that if a child needs more than a child-friendly space and needs professional support, then we refer them to the according um, teams or areas. And it's also a possibility so that the parents actually can be relieved and knowing that their children are being taken care of professionally and that they can sort of overcome their tragic experiences in those child-friendly spaces whilst their lives they go on as well they have to register in in a new country they need to um, make sure they have accommodation they don't sometimes they don't know the language they don't know the procedure to to get um, the asylum certificates etc so um, it is also a possibility to give the caretakers a way to go after all the duties that come with fleeing a country and finding refuge somewhere else. When you're in the middle of a, an evolving, complex and often chaotic situation like that, 
do you find there still there are a lot of bureaucratic hurdles and 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 officials and you know uh, procedures that you have to comply with or does it really feel like it's all hands on deck and you're getting access to the material you need you get access to you know uh, you for your staff to to access restricted areas to pass checkpoints etc is that how is it in reality it is fairly hands-on and um, of course there are a lot of internal procedures we have to pursue and should not be neglected because we also want to keep up a, a quality standard and for that we need certain procedures but generally they are really adapted to humanitarian crisis and also across uh, NGOs and across charities that that provide humanitarian aid there is really a great coordination going on so that pretty much a few days or weeks into a crisis, depending on its size and scope, every player knows what to do. And so that we don't sort of uh, have three NGOs doing the same, same, but thing. then something else is neglected. And I guess, sadly, you've done it all before. So there is there is experience. And it wasn't the first time. It wasn't the first time, no, for sure. And there, there's no sort of friendly competition going on of who's helping first, a bit of elbow pushing, no, you only. No, <laughs> not at all. That's not because sometimes from the from the other side of the story, it, you know, I, I've witnessed here at the beginning of the Ukraine crisis, everybody immediately wanted to help. But then there's the question, how do you help? There's the obvious big NGOs where you think, okay, yes, I can send some money. But I have the feeling that many people that were so um, personally affected by this being so close to home, especially here from a Central European perspective, where for many people it felt like this is next door, right? And, you know, then you think you want to do something more, you want to help people out physically, then we literally had people here in Schaffhausen sort of jumped in their cars and drove off to Poland and so on to try and see what they could do. Um, but, you know, it, it almost feels like a little bit frustrating that in that moment when you want to donate, when you want to do things and, and help people, then it feels like you can't get there. How does that look from from your end? I mean, it's the, the access to supply, logistical equipment, uh, donations? Is that easy enough at that point? Does it flow or do you also have this kind of setup phase where it, it takes a long time to specify what needs to go where and to get it all approved and to actually get donations in? As far as sort of the general process is concerned, I would say we really are very well set up because, as you mentioned before, we, we are used to such situations and we know sort of triggers what when when an emergency hits um it's absolutely true and it was phenomenal to see how globally and but especially also in in central europe the solidarity was enormous from uh, corporates foundations but also private people who who wanted to help and support um that that was really wonderful to see and and made our life easier as well definitely i guess Another answer to your question is that if we sort of bring it down to the to sort of a very simple answer, then I would say the most helpful way of supporting is actually making a donation to an organization that is professional, that is there, that has the footprint, the network, um, the, the connections to actually effectively help. And I know sometimes this feels like this is not enough because you would like to do more and you have sort of this urge to to support more, which is totally understandable. And we also were very creative um, and sort of adapted that very quickly to make sure that especially employees of, of our corporate partners um, could do hands-on work yeah. and support us there. It's just really the, the most effective way to help because 
this is a huge logistical process and and a lot of sort of experts that actually do nothing else day in day out than humanitarian help they know how to source the equipment once exactly. the funds are there. Exactly. Let me uh, bring that uh, over to you, Nina, and ask a little bit about your corporate partnerships and and the way that also corporations play a role in in ensuring a steady inflow. I, I hope of this uh, these much needed funds to support your work. Uh, yes, I mean corporate partnerships, generally partnerships play a very important role. All of our work would not be possible uh, without our partners. Um, so especially long-lasting partnerships, um, as you as you said, are giving us kind of this flexibility that that Leah mentioned. That is super important for our work to be on the spot uh, in the moment when needed most, and also not forgetting about the crises that are not in the media in the moment. Mm. Um, so we also, I mean, we always see very eye to eye with our partners, and we both bring the expertise we have. Um, and if kind of the partner trusts in our organization and the work we do, um, we, of course, uh, make sure that we have the biggest impact possible for children in need. And on the other hand, also making sure that the goals of the partners are met as well. And that, for example, employees can get engaged, communities can be engaged, um, customers um, can get involved to make sure that we kind of um, build this win-win partnership that in the end is is sustainable and um, benefits mm. all parties involved. Yes, and you seem to be doing a very good job of that because over the last two, three years, whenever I asked my team what we should do in XYZ, the answer was always save the children. So it's, <laughs> That's very nice to <laughs> hear. Seems to be a sort of complete package, no matter <laughs> what the question is, which is great. And then when it comes down to sort of um, people's individual engagement, before I obviously going to ask you in a minute how people can get involved and all the rest of it, but how does that work? How, how do you publicize your cause to the wider public to really make sure that, you know, we know this obviously, so these big charities, these annual TV events and stuff like that. How, how do you go about actually raising awareness for the cause? I mean, of course, we have a lot of our own channels um, that are tailored to the people interested in our work, be it social media, newsletters, annual reports. Um, but usually we reach then the people who are interested in our work anyways. And so one big tool for us is as well the partners, in fact, that through our partners, we have a whole new audience that we can talk to like we do right now. Um, and we, we, yeah, use this as, as a, as another channel um, to raise awareness for children in need, to raise awareness how everyone can get engaged. So this is a, an important mm. avenue we, we always try to pursue. And tell us a little bit, I mean, you said you, you have the experience of humanitarian crisis, sadly, of things repeating themselves over and over in the media focus, but away from the media spotlight as well. Maybe for our listeners, what, what are the sort of the biggest ignored humanitarian uh, catastrophes going on at the moment that just don't get the coverage where people should get involved, should have a look, and that just don't get covered on the news every single day? The first immediate thought that I had was the entire hunger crisis that is going on. That is really tragic and sort of as a consequence of many different uh, factors that that really fueled this this crisis, this will this will be really a, a huge tragedy in the Horn of Africa, um, but also in other uh, areas of the world, in some countries in Asia, Egypt. They are really going to suffer, and it's going to be extremely critical. Um, and of course, the um, COVID was was sort of one component that led to it and now the Ukraine 
crisis has a huge impact on the hunger situation because the, a lot of the wheat that is produced is actually being exported from Ukraine and Russia to all those countries. So this, I would say, sort of something which is lurking and sort of um, really on the edge of, of actually really becoming the next big humanitarian crisis. And then, of course, there are a lot of um, sort of wars in, for instance, to Yemen or uh, Syria or Afghanistan, where um, there is a lot of tragedy, a lot of uh, poverty, a lot of uh, children suffering every day and being deprived from, from basic needs. And um, we don't talk about that that often anymore publicly. Mm. No, and I guess Afghanistan is a tricky one because there you have a political dimension and a humanitarian dimension where sort of obviously nobody was ready, you know, in the Western world to support a systems change uh, in Afghanistan locally, but at the same time uh, trying not to ignore the humanitarian crisis. Is that coming along? Is support on the ground being uh, facilitated in Afghanistan or is it very tough at the moment? We we are on the ground, and um, but the... The way we respond is uh, it's actually quite a tricky uh, situation. The only, I mean, th that's the reason why we are politically neutral, so that we can act and and uh, provide support in countries like Afghanistan. Um, but but the um, possibilities how to help in Afghanistan are are very limited at the moment. Not a lot of access, like yeah. Somalia, not a lot yeah. of access to the country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. And it very much depends from district to district as well. I mean, in mm. some, there is a kind of access is possible and some not at all. And where do you see today, like when, when you look at what is working today and where you have the support, where are the biggest challenges? Where are the blocking points where you need additional resources, media attention, support of any kind? What's tricky? Well, I I would say what I just mentioned before this famine and and mm. sort of the the hunger crisis that is sort of emerging is very tricky and sort of something that that needs our attention. But unless we talk about this or raise the awareness, then we can't help as effectively as we should be helping. Um, and I also think really where sort of what we have now talked a little bit earlier already, all those forgotten crises where it might be a, a landslide somewhere in a little village which goes um, unnoticed, but for the local society and the local people there, this is very tragic and sort of adds complexity or adds suffering to maybe already a difficult life. And being able to help there is a challenge because of funding that is sometimes not available for it. Mm. Yeah, and then, of course, a bit closer to home, we have a cost of living crisis, which is uh, evolving as well. I think we're on the on the brink, brink of that in many countries where fuel uh, prices, heating costs are going up exponentially. And, and a lot of people here are finding it harder and harder and have to make choices between you know, feeding themselves, feeding their children, all the rest of it. Uh, are you able to build up a bit of support network um, around Europe as well in this situation? Or what's your plans? Regarding supporting those families that are hit yes, by... children sort of that economy. are literally hit by fuel poverty that are, you know, not able to continue going to school, eat normally, you know, have their homes heated and all the rest of it. 
Yeah, um, we, I mean, in, in many European countries, safety children is also present and we look um, at possibilities and, and, and how actually this economic crisis hits um, families there. Um, we look at how sort of they are affected and how we can help. So it's definitely also on our radar for sure. Mm. And then I'll ask you as well, obviously, if you're out in crisis-stricken countries and regions and places and, and you see hardship and suffering. And obviously everybody wants to help, when you, especially when you're there and on the ground and you see what's needed. How do you maintain that professional distance of, of ultimately you know that you've got to fight for the greater good and sometimes obviously move on as well and focus on different things? Is, how do you... How how does it can you not let it affect you on a personal level like really really closely? How do you deal with that? Well, I think it. I mean, I would say it's not possible to not mm. let it affect you personally. And I mean, in the end, this is then also when we talk to donors and partners and to kind of transport these true emotions and mm. this to explain what is happening on the ground requires a lot of empathy and also you have to be moved by the work you do so i mean yeah but of course you have to find then a balance to not overwhelm everyone with with the stories um that you come home with but i think to to be able to convey um our programs um to the greater public and our partners it, it has to affect you to some extent yeah i agree and and i also think this is something hugely individual and personal everybody sort of deals differently with with uh, the exposure we have personally me for instance um i take a lot out of the fact that i work for safety children mm. and i do whatever i can to contribute to to eliminate poverty or or to to reduce suffering from for children and then of course we also have a more sort of corporate system in place as well um, where where we can debrief within teams or we have the support needed for support if employees need that that's that's of course available as well so we've got to come to the time question um, and I will address this to both of you just sort of to round things off to say you know how do you take time off and what do you do uh, individually for your balance and your mental health and you know for dealing with everything what's, what's your recipe maybe start with you Nina um, well, I have a horse, so my That's big nice. um, recipe for mental health is spending time in the stable, cleaning stables, riding my horse, and also being together with friends. Um, having opera after work with colleagues is mm. something where that really feeds me. Um, Do you get enough time for the horse when it's all kicking off? Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, sometimes it's a late night session than at the stable, but it's it's much easier in summer. Ah, when I, I it's, did um, wonder what people are always doing in these stables <laughs> and neon lighting at 11.30pm when I'm walking the dog. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's a de-stressing horse care session. Yeah, but that would be the worst plan um, if I'm stressed and then don't go, um, don't go out anymore, then that wouldn't help. So I yeah. go out after a long day, especially then. Yeah. And the horse is still happy to see you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All hours of the day. Yes. What about you, Leah? Um, my ways of uh, dealing with stress is actually doing sports. I do quite a lot of different sports, but mostly sort of jogging, mountain biking, uh, mountaineering, ski tours in winter. So being in nature, being sort of somewhere where I am really small compared to my environment. Um, gives me gives me a lot of uh, 
pleasure, but also helps me to deal with. You must have an active year then. It's been, you know, a great winter. Now it's been quite the summer as well, unlike last summer. So uh, you, you've been getting out a lot? Yeah, quite uh, quite regularly. Yeah, um, ski tour season this year was a bit hampered, but now in summer, yes, I have been mm. on the bike quite regularly and in the mountains too. Yes, yeah, could always wish to do more, but I'm happy with the. I managed tours this morning done. to drop off my kids to the downhill mountain biking course in Larks before I came here. So. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> It's a summer program, but what a fantastic time to be out there. And I hope uh, that it helps you to balance uh, with all the great work that you do to help children around the world. And lastly, tell us for everybody listening who wants to get involved, who want to make a donation, as you said, rather than sending a bouncy castle or an oversized mattress. Um, where do, should people go? Uh, what should people do? Well, I mean, get engaged with whatever kind of offers are available, be it... This is with the bit where you quote the website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Safetechildren.ch <laughs> uh, you can go to, um, or .net, um, of course, and make a donation um, and get active in your community uh, for children's rights. But of course, donations are extremely impactful. Donations to Save the Children on savethechildren.net, you said, for our global audience. Yes. Fantastic. And I can only encourage everyone to go and do that. We are, of course, be happy to continue to be your partner with all your projects, big and small. Thank you very much for coming today. That would be super insightful. Nina, Leah, thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank, thank you, you so much. It was great being here. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, this, as an in-person podcast episode, I think we have to wrap it up now because it's getting about 45 degrees in here. And I think we all cannot wait to open the soundproof door. Uh, thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Partners in Time. In the meantime, everybody, have a great summer. Hope you get some time to relax and speak to you after summer break. Bye.